0: Audio Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to what is a momentous day. Today the Seneca Falls Convention began in 1848, which like sparked the biggest like women's rights thing in the United States. And this was the first ever convention in the United States. And it was huge. And we've whined about some of the women that attended. And hopefully we'll whine about some more later. And if you didn't know, this is whining about history, the Women's History Podcast. Where two longtime gal pals drink some wine and whine about women you may not have heard of before. Mainly, we whine about how you haven't heard about them.
0: I'm Kelly. I'm Emily, and uh, we we have a little bit. of... Uh... Things in common with the Seneca Falls Convention because that was planned around a tea table, and we come around our own self-declared, self-proclaimed tea table I mean, to find about women. the tea, I, we are spilling the tea about women that you def should have heard of. Was up? yeah. Oh my God, I'm a uh, very excited about my story because I found this woman in kind of like a roundabout way, and her story was not all I expected, and I got to like dip into different parts of American history fun. that I was not always uh super aware of but yeah I'm I'm really jazzed also it's sunny It's yeah,
1: it's been, actually really nice though
0: it's been rainy and cloudy and god it has just been wreaking havoc on my depression and so today I woke up and it was like the Beatles like here comes the sun. Please don't sue me. It's parody. And I say, it's mm. all right. Don't sue me. Don't sue me. Educational purposes. <laughs>
1: that was beautiful.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I try. I try with my anti-litigious song parody yeah, you lyrics. <laughs> But yeah, I'm so I'm really excited to record today. I'm really excited to see you because you're beautiful and wonderful. Oh, and You're
1: beautiful too. It
0: feels like forever since we recorded, even though we just recorded last week. I don't right. I don't know why. It's just the weirdest it's thing. It's been a week. Last week feels like an eternity ago. Right. It really, really does. That's where I am. So I picked our wine today and maybe I'm like vibing off of this wine because we're returning to one of my favorite brands, sweet bitch. And so we are drinking some sweet bitch mango Moscato. And unfortunately, a wine with this caliber of a name does not have a description to back it up. It's basically just government warnings about how women shouldn't drink uh but I did find a description online that says sparkling fruit flavors of tropical mango with a hint of orange and banana, crisp and refreshing. That's it. Ooh. I was kind of disappointed but I'm like, you know what? Sweet bitch. That's all you need to know. That's all I That's needed all to, know we need to know. To buy the bottle. So I'm really excited because it's a warm sunny day and uh it's perfect. It really is. For fruity ass wine. Yeah. The perfect wine to whine about women and how we haven't heard of them.
1: Yeah. Well, now you're going to hear about them. Yeah, now you're going to hear gonna about be them.
0: bomb AF. Time to get woke AF. <laughs> Educated AF. So, Kelly, what should we cheers to? Mm, you can pick this week. Ooh, um, let's cheers to the sunshine.
1: To I, the sunshine. Give me that sweet, sweet D. Yeah. Like D of the vitamin kind. Mm. Oh my god! Oh my god!
0: This is good. I could just—oh god, that is really good. I could just slurp this down and not give it a second thought mm. until this, I got this. This is something that needs Ill. to be like
1: in a can. Yes, that you can just like.
0: It needs to be on a can in a can, and I need to be on a river in my swimsuit, basking in the sun. Soaking up that sweet, sweet D of the vitamin variety. Right. I really, I want a shirt that says, give me the D, but in like parentheses and like small text before the D, it says vitamin. <laughs> right. Because I'm a dirty birdie.
1: If we made a shirt like that, guys, would you buy it?
0: I, I was going to say like, who here is lacking the vitamin D and needs to advertise it? <laughs> we both raise our hands. I'm actually, I'm excited because I was thinking about our funerarian, funerista idea for our patrons. Mm -hmm. And when we said that when we got 10 patrons, we would make patron-exclusive merch. And I think instead of trying to pick one, we'll let you guys pick. We'll make funerarian and funerista shirts. I already have a designer in mind. And, uh... It'll be patron exclusives like you have to be a patron to show off that you're a funerista or a funerarian and that way they don't have to be gendered it can be your preference If you feel one is more of aligned with one gender than the other, it can conform to whatever you want. But I honestly can't pick between funerarian and funerista. Honestly, some days I'm like a stoic funerarian where I'm just like, yes, I am the keeper of knowledge and I must share the stories of these women. And other days I'm a funerista where I'm like, have you heard of these bitches? Let me, no, shut, let shut, me the, inform you. shut the fuck up and let me tell you about these fucking bitches because they are the best. Like it, like it's an energy. It's like a type A versus a type right. B. So, and you know what? You can get two shirts depending on your mood. <laughs> you can get both. Get both. Get everything. Become a patron. As little as one, one dollar. One dollar, dollar, One dollar. One dollar bill. One dollar bill. Make it rain. Make it rain. All right. Kelly, yeah. I'm I'm going you're first today. First. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Well, like I said, I discovered this woman through kind of a roundabout way. So by the time this comes out, everyone's going to be like, "Wow, Emily, you're so behind on the times. But I was reading about how Canada is excavating former Indian schools. And for anyone that doesn't remember, we talked about Indian schools when we covered Zikala Shah in... Oh God! A million years ago, it feels like right. it was like our Christmas episode the first year we did this. So like, look, December two thousand nineteen. That that that's your that's your range. And basically, the point of these schools was to take Indigenous children out of their tribes and assimilate them into white European culture, uh, which meant destroying and scrubbing them of any traces of their Indigenous culture. Um, including cutting their hair. They weren't allowed to speak their language. They couldn't practice any of their customs. And the whole idea, their slogan was literally, kill the savage, save the man. So you can already tell this is coming from a super racist place. But then it wasn't even like, hey, the world is changing. The Europeans are kind of taking over North America. Let, you know, let, 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 let's all like get on the same page. It was like, hey, we're going to educate you so you can be in a subservient role. Like we're going to teach you to clean toilets and make food. And God forbid you get a higher education, though, because then you're on the level with us. It was all about right. making indigenous people more acceptable to European settlers But then also keeping them subservient and it was super fucked up and here's and beyond that, that's fucked up enough. But beyond that, there was rampant abuse, sexual abuse and death. Yeah, So many of these children died and no one, no one was told. No one knew what happened to them. When I went to Colorado, I went to the history center and they have a whole exhibit about the indigenous tribes that are native to the Colorado area. And they had a section about Indian schools. And you bet I read through that entire pamphlet and there was actually a group of women, their children had gone to an Indian school. And I'm using the term Indian for Indian school because that is what they were called. Um, But they went to one in New Mexico And 11 children died
1: Jesus, within
0: like the first year, maybe less. It was ridiculous. And so these women are like, hey, if our children are going to be forced to go to these schools, we at least want one close by so we can keep tabs on them. So you can't spirit our kids away to another state where they'll die and we're never going to know what happened. Did they die of disease? Was it preventable? Did you starve them? Right. Did you beat them? Did you murder them? Because a whole host of things could have happened because you're putting people in charge of children. That probably who are, shouldn't be. Well, and who are literally being viewed as less than human. Yeah. They're viewed as quote unquote savages. I'm like, wow, how did we ever expect abuse to not just happen here? But no one cared. So what's happening is Canada is going through and excavating some of these schools and they are finding graves of hundreds and hundreds of children and people are understandably pissed. So I thought that would be a really good time to revisit the topic of, you know, indigenous people in North America and Indian schools. And I was having a hard time, though finding a woman that went to one that we haven't already covered because Susan LaFleche, who you covered, kept popping up on my searches. Hmm. Zee Shaw, who I covered, kept popping right. up on my searches. But I did find an indigenous woman who came long before the Ooh. Indian schools. And I did a little reading on her and I was like, okay, the universe has brought me to this woman and I must honor the call of the universe. So I am covering Nanyi also known as Nancy Ward and i will be referring to her as High throughout the story i think she's more commonly known as Nancy Ward because that was her anglican Anglic- Anglic-
1: anglo- saxon anglo-
0: G- Z- v- Z- B- name anglo saxon name god i can't i can't say words they're hard apparently but that came after she got married i was like ah. and you'll find out i i definitely prefer her original name so Nanyehai was born sometime in 1738, so we're going way back, in Shota, which is, uh, means City of Refuge, and this was the Cherokee capital. So she was a member of the Cherokee Nation. Now the area is part of the southeastern border of Tennessee. So this is like, for our modern audiences, where we are. Right. Because <laughs> I'm like, where's that? I don't know. <laughs> so her name means one who goes about and was derived from Nunehai, the name of the legendary spirit people in Cherokee mythology. Mm. So we're going to do a little mythology lesson here because this was fascinating. The spirit people are similar to fairies in European folklore and live under, in underground homes throughout the Appalachian mountains. It's said that hunters will hear Nunehai singing, dancing, and beating drums in the mountains. But like, if you try to go towards the sound... To like find them, it'll move. So, like, you're going towards the drumming and all of a sudden the drumming's coming from behind you. So they're like kind of sneaky and kind of like, ooh, right. That's <laughs> gonna awesome. freak though. you out. And they also protect the Cherokee and warn them of danger. So they're, it seems like they're a little mischievous, but overall benevolent. And one of the most famous stories of this is when the Nunahai warned the Cherokee of quote, the removal in 1838 so this was a part of the infamous trail of tears where indigenous tribes were forced to leave oh. their native lands and relocate to shitty reservations halfway across the goddamn country in this case the Cherokee were forced to resettle in Oklahoma can you imagine walking from Tennessee to Oklahoma
1: no that'd be terrible
0: and I would probably be more prepared they were given no time to no, prepare. they, they literally they, like
1: people just showed up and were like you need to leave now yeah
0: yeah pack up what you can and get the fuck out Victims were forced to trek hundreds of miles and many died along the way. So, according to this story, the Nunahai came to the Cherokee village and told everyone to pack up their belongings because a great catastrophe would occur. In seven days, the Nunahai would return to save the Cherokee. After seven days, the Nunahai returned and led the Cherokee people deep into the mountains until they reached a large stone. Suddenly, the stone rolled away, revealing a secret entrance into the mountain. And past the entrance was a beautiful place where the Cherokee could live with the Nunahai in peace and avoid the coming devastation. So some families entered the mountain to safety, but others remained outside and were forced onto the Trail of Tears. It's said that the Cherokee people who still live on their ancestral lands are descended from those who entered the mountain. So this is like, I don't know, kind of still a thing? I don't know. I love it because this legend is tied to actual historical events and actual like ancestral lands. I'm like, no, this definitely happened. Like the Nuna are real. I believe it. Mm -hmm. They're chilling with the deer woman who's killing all the fuck boys. It's great. So I want everyone to just like lock this story away for a minute because it will become relevant later. Nanyahai was born in the middle of a smallpox epidemic, which wiped out Oof. approximately 50% of the population. And she miraculously survived because like, can you imagine being a baby born? I'd be like, you're dead. You're, you're a baby. What? Like you're dead. Done. So as a teenager, Nanyahai married a warrior named uh, Sula, which means Kingfisher, and by the time she was 17 years old, she had two children. And even at such a young age, she was a respected member of the tribe, described as commanding and resourceful. That was her Tinder profile, and people respected the hell out of it. They're like, oh man, you're not messing around, you just like are this great presence. (laughs) So Nanyahai wasn't one to stay home while her husband brought home the bacon. She accompanied Sula to battle against their longtime enemies, the Muskogee people, who are also known as the Creek people. Uh, She would chew Sula's lead bullets before he loaded his gun to make the edges jagged and inflict more damage. Wow. So she's like over here, like chewing on bullets. bullets. She's like, here, here, babe, here, babe. I got some blood. Okay, there you go. Like she's just going to town. And I love it. Unfortunately, Sula was killed during one of these battles in 1755. Nanyahai responded by picking up his rifle and charging into battle. And the sight of her charging at them apparently scared the Muskogee tribe so badly that they fled, delivering the victory to the Cherokees. And it that gave me like Ludmila Pavlichenko vibes. Because the only reason she ever got her hands on a gun was because one of her comrades was too wounded to use it. So she just picked up her gun and was like, Bang!
1: Right. She's like, I got this. And then they were
0: like, this chick. Always needs a gun. No, I will give her my gun. We give her all the guns. (laughs) But I love this theme of, like, someone drops a gun and a woman just picks it up and, like, shoots her way into the history books. So for her bravery, Nanyahai had the title of Gigu, or Beloved Woman, bestowed upon her. So this put Nanyahai in a powerful position within the tribe as they believed that the Great Spirit would speak through the Beloved Woman. This made her the only female voting member of the Cherokee General Council. So she's a woman that's got it going on. She was also named the leader of the women's council of clan representatives, and this put her in a position to be an ambassador for her people. That's cool. So she's like, I don't know, like she picks up a gun and literally like charges her way into being one of the most powerful women in her nation. Yeah. I'm like, you go, girl. That's a that's a pretty big career leap from chewing bullets to like being an ambassador.
1: I still think the chewing bullets thing is hilarious.
0: I'm, I'm just like, ugh. here you go, babe. Here you go, babe. <laughs> and then I imagine she's got a baby strapped to her back too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I can't wait till this baby gets teeth, and that, like, that's what this baby's gonna teeth on—some lead bullets. Let's just do this. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna up our production. <laughs> so this was incredibly important because things were not always chill between the indigenous tribes and the European settlers in case you weren't aware of that history of conflict. Nanyai became a respected diplomat for her peacekeeping efforts. So during the French and Indian War, which spanned from 1754 to 1763, between the British colonies and the French colonies, the Cherokee teamed up with the British colonies in exchange for protection against their longtime enemies, the Muscogee Nation, who I mentioned before. I thought this was interesting because I don't remember anything about the french and indian war in school i had to do a
1: project on the french and indian war oh
0: really what what do you remember from that okay cool (laughs) just that there was one see and that's where i am too but like the name implies that it was the french versus the indigenous people but it was the british versus the french and both sides solicited help from indigenous tribes So it was really the British and the French colonists war featuring First Nations, like (laughs) First Nations remix, right? I I don't know. I thought that was super funny because I was like, oh, man, I thought the French and the indigenous people got into it. No, it was just the French and the British throwing fits with each other. Like what else is new? Anyway, because Nanihai was a beloved woman, she had the authority to spare captives. After the Cherokees attached, attached? attacked. Not as nice. They attached their violence to an email and sent it and it like had a lot of exclamation (laughs) points. It was bolded. There were some red colored texts in there. It was a very violent email. But no, they attacked a fort settlement and one of the settlers, Lydia Bean, was going to be burned at the stake. Nanyahai spared Lydia and invited the woman into her home where she nursed her back to help. I'm not sure why or what the whole deal was, like one, why Lydia would be singled out to be burned at the stake and why Nanyahai was like, nah, I don't know. Maybe she's like, I can tell you're cool because while Lydia was staying with Nanyahai, she and Drews introduced Nanyahai to a new loom weaving technique and how to make butter and cheese. Ooh. Oh my God. So apparently Nani Hai was so into dairy because this was like the first time she'd been introduced to, you know, dairy making. And she was so into it that she bought some cattle and introduced dairy making to the Cherokee people and is credited with introducing them to dairy. So she is the OG dairy queen. She is the only dairy queen. <laughs> It's funny because if you read anything about her, that is the one thing that is always there, that she introduced dairy to the Cherokee Nation. Like, that's how big of a deal it was. So during the American Revolutionary War, most of the Cherokee people sided with the British because they had before. They'd been buddies. Right. But Nanihai supported the rebel patriots because she herself is a rebel. She's a saint. She's the salt of the earth. And she's dangerous. She went as far as warning Patriot soldiers of attacks from her own people. And she also kept her dairy love going and supplied the Patriot soldiers with cattle. So she's like, let me bestow upon you this wonderful dairy goodness. Have you heard of cheese? It is the shit. Put it on everything. Cook it, a little, melt it over a fire. That right. shit will change your life. And this wasn't like necessarily to undermine her people. She wasn't like. Fuck my people go Patriots, but it was more to prevent retaliatory attacks against the Cherokee. So she's kind of like trying to prevent them from coming to blows entirely by sabotaging the Cherokee efforts to attack the Patriots. Cause she's like, I, I dig what they're doing, but I also like, these are my people. So I'm just going to try to like, keep you guys apart.
1: Like you go in that corner and you go in that corner.
0: Don't make me turn this country around. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just imagining she's like a mom that's like, or she's like a referee. She's like, okay, okay. Everyone just chill the fuck out. Chill the fuck out. Like, I like you, but you're my peeps. And if you could just like not get into shit, that'd be great. Throughout her life, her ultimate goal was always to maintain peaceful relations between the Cherokee people and the European settlers. And despite her efforts, Nanyehi and her family were captured in a battle during which a North Carolina militia invaded Cherokee territory. She and her family were released and returned to Chota. So she wasn't able to stay completely out of harm's way and keep everyone safe, but she kind of did her best. In the late 1750s, an English trader named Bryant Ward, and this is T-R-A-D-E-R, like, I'm going to trade my Pokemon cards with you, that kind of guy. Um, So he began living with the Cherokees after the French and Indian War. He and Nanyahai apparently hit off because they got married, and Nanyahai adopted an anglicized name, an Mm. anglicized name, an anglicized name, Nancy Ward. And And the two adopted a child named Betsy, which is like the most white bread name I've ever heard in my life. Now, here's where the drama kind of comes in. This is where the situation gets a little bit complicated. So, Bryant Ward hadn't just been previously married, but was in fact still married to his European wife, who was still living in South Carolina, potentially with children of her own. I couldn't find if he still had, if he already had children, but I feel like it's pretty safe to say, like, everyone's fucking like rabbits back then. So, for a time, Nanya High and Bryant lived in Chota, but eventually he moved back to South Carolina to be with his first family. So this dude has two fucking families. Like he's just going around. He's that one of those we, guys. that we know of. Yeah, right. Now, great. It was super easy to have like a billion different families back then. No one Still. knew who anyone was. So it's possible that you just not, wear a
1: hat and no one would know who you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. You.
0: Ch- oh my god, did you ever hear? there I think it's an African legend I learned on I learned about it on Between the Lions that old PBS show where it's the lions mm-hmm. in the library and they're all puppets but there's someone that's in the village and they have a hat and one half of the hat is green and one half of the has red and they're going through the village and everyone's like oh my God, I love your red hat. Oh my God, I love your green hat because they're not seeing it from the other side. Mm-hmm. And all the people start fighting over what color the hat really is without realizing it's red and green. It's this story about like having different perspectives. That dude's just walking around with a red and green hat. Like, man, that looks like my husband, but his hat's red and normally it's green. So can't be him. Yep. <laughs> anyway, it's possible that Nanyi Hai knew about her husband's other family maybe the whole time i don't know apparently cherokee culture didn't view marriages as a lifelong commitment uh it was also pretty easy for women to divorce their husbands all they had to do was place a deer skin outside of their home and the husband shit on it and the husband was expected to get the fuck out sorry what like did he
1: actually shit on it No, 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 no
0: no no the husband's stuff oh the i thought you said belong- the
1: husband shits no, on no, it no no
0: no so the woman so say Would just
1: place all his stuff outside on a deer skin, and, and- that was the si- signal of you're not welcome here anymore yeah
0: i i packed your shit get out which is like way more civil than us just tossing our boyfriend shit out of a window
1: i don't know there's something cathartic about window tossing
0: true true but
1: you know what they're just better than us it's fine just way it's more classy. classy you know they, way classy they put they, a, even they put, put in a, a, a deer skin down so their stuff right? doesn't get dirty
0: right how like our modern divorces are not that civil let's right? be perfectly honest but i love that that woman if the guy was fucking around or not doing his job or like beating her or anything the woman could be like nope I hit the eject button, get out now. And that was just the expectation. Like, okay, you have to leave now. There's no fighting. There's no, but I'm in it. It's get out.
1: It's you're done.
0: Yeah. So she was, so this implies that High wasn't entirely subject to her husband's wishes and had more autonomy than we would imagine a wife having in the 1700s. So after Bryant Ward returned to South Carolina, High and their daughter, Betsy, visited him at his home multiple times and they were apparently welcomed into the home and treated with respect. So it sounds like she knew and
1: actually visited her husband's first wife and like <laughs> but I'm just like what Yeah that would never happen today. What I was
0: In a soap opera it totally would. And this is all the ingredients of soap opera level drama but apparently everyone was super chill and just handled it kind of maturely, maybe. I don't know. It's just like a crazy situation, but everyone was just kinda like, Meh. yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I'm just gonna be super chill about this. You know, if you find your stuff on a deer skin outside the uh, outside the home, just don't you know what it. it means. You know what it means. So Nani High apparently just exuded chill. Like that that was that was her signature temperature, uh, which is important when she participated in treaty negotiations between the Cherokees and the settlers. In 1781, after several attacks by settlers on Cherokee villages, negotiations were held to try and achieve peace. So during the negotiations, Nanihai was invited to speak, which was unusual for the time. In Cherokee culture, the men would conduct the negotiations and meetings, but then would go back home and consult with their wives before making any big decisions. Which I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, involve everyone in the process. Right. This led settlers to assume that the Cherokee had a quote unquote petticoat government or one that was secretly run by women. They're like, no, they're just sending us the men, but the men don't actually have any power. Like they never thought for a second, oh, maybe they're all making decisions as adults and as a one community.
1: (laughs) Right. Like, but it was a normal person. Right. But
0: it was still unusual for women to be at these meetings and to speak at them. You know, they, they were always getting like the app, the
1: play by play afterwards. they They get the back end.
0: Yeah. So while women were consulted, they rarely spoke at the negotiations, and Nani took this opportunity and gave an impassioned speech asking for peace between the two communities. Several of the European settlers later wrote that her words had a significant impact on their decision to make peace with the Cherokees. The resulting treaty was also a pretty big deal as it established peace between the settlers and the Cherokee Nation without the settlers demanding Cherokee land in exchange. Because what would happen is the settlers would instigate these attacks and attack Cherokee villages and the Cherokee would be like, hey, let's let's work this out. And the settlers would be like, if you give us some of your land, we'll chill. And it was just kind of this ongoing process of right. like taking m- little, more little, more, yeah, yeah, exactly. So this was a case where the settlers were like, okay, we'll chill. And this wasn't just because the settlers were feeling particularly mellow. They weren't just like, hey, maybe we're like kind of being assholes about this, like attacking them and then making them negotiate with us to give us their land because we're right? attacking like, them and instigating an assholes. So they had initially intended to demand all of the land north of the Little Tennessee River. So they went into this being like, "We're gonna get all this we land. We know exactly what we want. It's gonna be awesome." And then Nanya High is like, "Can we please get along?" Like she gives this impassioned speech, and the settlers are like, "Oh my god, I feel like a dick now." Okay, okay, truce. We're cool. We're cool. Not that it stayed that way forever, right? I I wrote here, honestly, this was literally the least they could do, because even though peace had now been established, the Cherokee villages, which the settlers had destroyed, significantly impacted their winter food supply and resulted in starvation. So the damage was done, even if they didn't have to give up any of their land. People literally starved to death. And to get through the winter, Nanyahai herself and one of the other Cherokee men who had helped to lead these negotiations had to stay with one of the settlers to survive like you did this you're gonna house us so we don't die of starvation thank you Nanya High spoke again when the Treaty of Hopewell was made in 1785 between members of the United States Congress and the Cherokee Nation so now we're past the American Revolution the United States is a thing and it's the United States government that's negotiating, negotiation negotiating with First Nations people. So during this treaty talk, she was pleading for continued peace. She's like, hey, we're doing all right. Let's just all leave each other alone. We've got our stuff. You've got your stuff. You're a cool new nation. That's great. Do your thing, but leave us the hell alone. She invited everyone to smoke her peace pipe as a sign of friendship and asked that the quote chain of friendship will never more be broken. She's like, let's just all chill Let's all agree right here, right now, in 1785, that we will be friends, that we will be, you know, communal and cool with each other. And this treaty was supposed to place a Western boundary on American settlement, preventing settlers from encroaching further onto Cherokee lands. It also stipulated that settlers who were living beyond the newly established border had to leave within six months. Otherwise the Cherokee. Oh,
1: you mean they didn't have to leave immediately?
0: They, they got it. You know, we talk about 30 day eviction notices. These people got six months to get the fuck out their deer skins and their stuff were put on the doorstep and they knew what it meant and they were told to go. And if they didn't, Well, you're on Cherokee land and they can do what they want. They can push you out. You're the one that didn't leave. Now, here's the part that I know everyone is waiting for. It is tragically difficult to discuss treaties between the United States and First Nations people without talking about them being broken. Because I remember reading this. I was like, wait, what do you mean stop westward expansion? They're in Tennessee. We expanded all the way to the goddamn ocean. It was awful. So the treaty actually inspired a Cherokee saying called Talking Leaves, which referenced treaties between them and the United States. It conveyed the fact that once a treaty didn't suit the United States government anymore, it would blow away like talking leaves. So basically, the, the United States can promise anything they want up front and it, they can erase it if they want, whenever they feel like it. And that's exactly what the U.S. government did over and over and over Unfortunately, the Cherokee continued to lose more and more land to, to the growing American colonies. Nanyahai spoke out against this. In 1817, she was too sick to attend a council meeting where Georgia and the U.S. government wanted the Cherokee to move west of the Mississippi River. She wouldn't let an illness silence her. She wrote, quote, don't part with any more of our lands, but continue on it and enlarge your farms and cultivate and raise corn and cotton. And we, your mothers and sisters, will make clothing for you. It was our desire to forewarn you all not to part with our lands. However, by this time, Nanyahai's influence was waning. She was getting older, and the Cherokee people began to adopt practices of the settlers, including governmental practices. And with this kind of culture shift and shift in rule, Nanyahai's status as a beloved woman didn't mean as much, because that was seen as like a part of the old way versus this evolution. The new way
1: women were didn't have as much power.
0: Yeah, or just even that particular status. She remained active in the community by taking care of children who needed help. I love her. So two years later in 1819, Nanya High and the rest of her people were forced to move south and their lands north of the Hawassi River were bought by the U.S. government. After this location, or sorry, excuse me. After this relocation, Nanya High opened and ran an inn. Hmm. And she would do that until she died. Like she... Stayed busy, can't stop, right. won't stop. In her later years, Nanyahai was plagued with visions that showed a, quote, great line of our people marching on foot. Mothers with babies in their arms. Fathers with small children on their back. Grandmothers and grandfathers with large bundles on their backs. They were marching west, and the Unaka, which means white soldiers, were behind them. They left a trail of corpses, the weak, the sick, who could not survive the journey. So that was a quote from her describing her mm. visions. Nani died in either 1822 or 1824, not long a- and not long after President Andrew Jackson initiated what was called Indian Removal, which allowed the U.S. government to forcibly remove indigenous peoples from their ancestral lands. This would become known as the Trail of Tears as countless people were forced from their homes on an arduous and often deadly trek to west of the Mississippi. They were denied provisions or proper clothing for the journey of 800 miles. Over 4,000 Cherokees alone died on the Trail of Tears. And that is just the Cherokee Nation. Yeah, that's insane. And actually that smallpox epidemic that I mentioned when Nanihai was born, that also was like a huge blow to their community. Like that weakened them significantly because they lost 50% of their population. And then not like that long after this happens. And yeah, Andrew Jackson was uh, pretty notable for hating indigenous people. And uh, he did everything he could to fucking wipe them out. And of course, they weren't given provisions because if they die on the way, it's fewer to deal with.
1: Exactly. It's just,
0: I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. And Nani saw it. She saw it. like She was having these visions, these nightmares. And this is exactly what she was seeing. And it made me think... So I'm just going to read my notes because I already wrote this. It's suspected that Nanyihai, who was named for the protective spirit people, was having visions of the coming Trail of Tears in order to warn her people. So there's this story of the spirit people warning the Cherokee of the Trail of Tears, and she's named after them, and then she's having these prophetic visions. Like, that, like, my mind is blown. How... Crazy is that. And then poor high like she couldn't do anything about it.
1: Yeah. It's ridiculous. Ah, oh,
0: it's just it's it's so sad. It's so sad. Legacy. In 1923, about a hundred years after her death, a memorial was erected at high's grave site. So we actually we don't know when she died, but we know where she's buried. Hmm. A chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution in Tennessee is named after her using her anglicized name, Nancy Ward. Why did I include that word so much in my notes? I cannot say it. The Polk County Historical and Genealogical Society has a Nancy Ward room in their genealogy library, and the county is raising money to create a Nancy Ward museum. And normally this is where I tell you where to donate, but I literally could not find anything. No idea. I'm like, are they just like reaching out via letters? It's like, where is your GoFundMe? Where is your website? Call me. I will build you a website. I'll like, I'll set you up on Wix or, you know. Something. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. A statue of Nanyihai was carved in nine, 19, 1906. 1906. <laughs> That's some real, like, spooky, prophetic shit right there. Um, And stood in a cemetery in Granger County, Tennessee, until the early 1980s when it was stolen. So the statue of her was stolen in the 80s. And the East Tennessee Historical Society is still asking for it to be returned. They're still looking for this. This statue is sitting in some asshole's basement while they do acid all day. Like... And you know this fucker's still living with his mom or some dumb shit, like like clinging to his acid-washed jeans and his feathered hair. Like (laughs) he's got his fucking Walkman doing coke. (laughs) Talk about Reaganomics, just being an asshole. Like, be better, do better. If anyone knows where this fucking statue is, like, turn it in. Call Crime Stoppers, anonymous tips, something. So because that's a fucking bummer, I want to end this on a quote from Nanyahai. Yeah. So while speaking on behalf of the Cherokee as a diplomat, the leader of the American delegation told her that he was surprised that the Cherokee left such an important task to a woman. And she replied, You know that women are always looked upon as nothing, but we are your mothers. You are our sons. Our cry is all for peace. Let it continue. This peace must last forever. Let your women's sons be ours. Our sons be yours. Let your women hear our words. Hmm. And that is the story of Nanihai, also known as Nancy Ward, the OG Dairy Queen.
1: I like that. The I, OG Dairy yeah. Queen.
0: Yeah. Well, I thought it was cool because I got to like learn about the French and Indian War, which really wasn't the French and Indian War. I got to learn about like the part of different indigenous tribes in the American Revolution. I got to learn a little more about like Cherokee mythology, the Trail of Tears. Like her story touched on so many important events in American history. Yeah. And I knew about all those events, but this was from a completely different perspective. And it was like obviously a tragic story but it was really fascinating it was a really great experience to get to see it from that perspective and i love right. the whole time she's like we're all in this together can't soon me, educating about american history and like everyone's like no we're gonna keep fighting she's like damn it guys she's
1: Like, listen to me act
0: like fucking adults but right? that's all she wanted she just wanted everyone to get along, and yeah, she's tried so hard, she fought so hard and at and it breaks my heart that she saw what was coming right that she kind like not that this was her responsibility or this was all up to her or that she did fail, but just that she knew all of that work was like despite everything she had done, her people were still being sent on a death march,
1: yeah, it's ridiculous. But yeah. I hope your story's more happy than mine. I mean, yeah, kind of.
0: Don't don't kind of me. Mm-hmm. You're you're talking about like, oh, woman cured cancer, cool, let's talk about that.
1: <laughs> I mean, I could google something like that, but, you know.
0: Did I tell you that I saw a uh, a truck the other day? So not the a couple of weeks ago, I was seeing like nothing but out of state license plates. So I don't know if we had an event in town or something. And it was funny because, like in Minnesota, we love our window stickers and our bumper stickers. We're not immune to it. Yeah, we're weird. But people from out of state had some really interesting ones. In particular, there was a truck where on one side of the back window it said, fuck cancer. And the C's were, like, made from, like, little pink ribbons. And on the other side, it said, shoot your local drug dealer. And I'm like, but what if your local drug dealer has cancer? (laughs)
1: You would think of that. Right. Like,
0: shoot your local drug dealer if they have cancer or unless they have cancer. Or regardless, like, I don't know. It was, I would. It was just, it was very confusing. It was weird, but I've
1: never seen a sticker that aggressive. Shoot your local drug dealer. Like the most aggressive sticker I saw was, it was one that, oh God, it was on like their back, their back left window and it was on a van and it like, it was like, if you, if If you saw this while I passed you, it means you're like fucking slow driver. And it was like it was really aggressive. And me and Justin were both like, well, first of all, it's illegal to pass on the right. I was just going to (laughs) say,
0: if it's on the left window, that means you're passing on the right.
1: (laughs) Like there was just so much wrong with it. And like she was just it was very angry, too. And I was just like, okay. Then they had like other bumper stickers that kind of like followed the same like vein, and I'm like, mm, I hope you don't have children. <laughs>
0: it's it's like you see a vehicle like that, and you're like, so you're trying to start something, right? You're ready to have like a straight up bar brawl on the side right? of the road. Like you're you're itching for it.
1: You're itching for some road rage. Yeah,
0: yeah. You're looking for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. You're
0: you're antagonizing people without trying. Like really, I mean, what a clever way to outsource being antagonistic like the sticker does all the work for you right and exactly. you don't have to do anything except have a smug smile on your face while you illegally pass someone on the right hand side
1: <laughs> oh god that's funny
0: god love it you know what i want you know how they have those yellow diamond ones that say baby on board oh yeah Yep. Yeah. i want one that says bitches on board
1: i have one that says blue shell on board ah that's good but Justin's like, we're never putting that in the window because then someone will think we have a baby.
0: Yeah, well, then they like, like yeah, they can't until they read
1: it. And then they'll be like, oh, they're gamers.
0: Oh, they're gamers who might have a baby. So maybe I won't pass them on the right like an asshole. <laughs> maybe I won't shoot their drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I will. <laughs> like, oh, God, I don't know. That was just I was like, wow, I've literally never seen a bumper sticker that was like Murder
1: right now <laughs> but also fuck cancer
0: yeah unless your drug dealer has cancer
1: then you know then it's a moral conflict yeah like wait which way do you go what if you argue that you're shooting the cancer in the drug dealer yeah, right no no, no no i was shooting at the to, cancer you just have to yell fuck cancer when you shoot him yeah yeah because then yeah you're not shooting your drug dealer you're shooting the cancer yes and your drug dealer
0: yeah it's you know it's it's not your fault the drug dealer was getting in the way of the cancer you're trying. What is happening? What is happening? Okay. I don't know. You started this. I did. I did. This wine is really good. It is. Oh, you gave me a ride. So I'm like,
1: yeah, strap and strap it. on. I'm getting into this.
0: So Kelly, who are you whining about?
1: I am whining about Hilda Cooper. Probably not very well. So I'm going to say this first off. Like, I couldn't find a lot about her. There are... She does have a biography and there is a book called Pioneers of the Field and she's featured in one chapter, but I couldn't get either of those resources like in time because like one of them you can pay like 60 bucks to rent for a week. And I was like, that's a lot of money. Are you
0: fucking, buy the book. How much is the book if you can only rent it for a week for
1: $60? And I was going to buy it, but I still probably wouldn't have gotten here in time. And then she does have an autobiography, but- Oh, damn. It's kind, of, it's kind of more about her writing than it is about like her life. Okay. It's, yeah, it's interesting. But I got what I could. So this is like skimming the surface. That's
0: okay. We ate up like a good 10 minutes talking about the pros and cons of shooting your drug dealer with cancer. <laughs> with or without cancer. With or without cancer. Hey, guys, let us know.
1: <laughs> so Hilda was born to Lithuanian Jewish and Austrian parents. Her father, Joseph, was a Lithuanian... Jewish person and her mother Antoinette was from Austria. So she was an Austrian Jewish person. Okay. They met in the town of Bulawayo in Southern Rhodesia when um, Antoinette attended her sister's wedding to a local man there. So she met Joseph, you know, they fell in love. Her family was like, no, you, you know, you're not going to stay here. You know, you're coming back to Austria with us. Oh, bummer. I
0: was going to say how romantic to meet your husband at a wedding. uh, Yeah,
1: no, she said, fuck you to her parents and got married (laughs) to him anyways. So they had three children and Hilda was their youngest. She was much beloved, very much an indulged, you know, youngest child, you know, the baby of the family.
0: She she was the Michelle Tanner of the group.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: There there were also two of her that <laughs> like switched in and out seamlessly. Yes.
1: So her father was deployed when World War 1 started. Okay. He was deployed to fight in East Africa for the British. He would go on to later die of influenza. Oh, while serving? Yeah. Oh, sad. So Hilda would go on to write a short story about her childhood that was called "The Photograph," and it's about watching her mother being torn between her husband, who was fighting for the British, and her brother and family, who were fighting for the Germans because they were from Austria. Oh and no! And it's World War One, so yeah. they're not like anti Semit Well, yet. Yeah. <laughs> so the story still. talks about how, like, she had to watch her mom as. The war got worse and the Germans became more and more of the enemy. She had to watch her mom, you know, like, remove all her family photos. She stopped talking about, like, her heritage. She stopped singing, you know, like, Austrian songs that she used to sing to the kids and, like, just kind of, like, completely withdrew into herself because, you know, she would be viewed as the enemy if she didn't. Yeah,
0: Oh, that's so sad. Right. Well, and then Hilda's mom, like, it's kind of like during the American Civil War where it was like families literally torn down the middle, right. killing each other in the fields. It's like, how do you, you're worried about your husband on one side and your family on the other. And it's like, how do you kind of reconcile with that right. worry? Because it's like, God, no matter what happens, you lose. Yeah,
1: Hilda also <laughs> talked about how when... Like, the British, when the soldiers came home, her mom didn't go to the train station because she was still, like, super conflicted. She's like, should I be happy about the British soldiers coming home? Yeah. Because she had also, like, and then it turned out her brother died in the war and it was, like, this whole
0: Well, and then for her mom to have to kind of renounce her culture and her heritage because of that. Right. That's so sad. So
1: after the war and without her father around, they moved in with her father's brother, was Uncle Yoshi in Johannesburg, South, South Africa? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I had to think about that. Um, and this was the first time she really encountered heart, like actual anti-Semitism. Because back home, she lived in an area that, like her whole network, was Jewish. You yeah. Know? Like that's who, like both of her parents were Jewish, and that's who they, that's who they knew. But here, she was viewed as a stranger. Her family also wasn't like super orthodox, so they didn't, they like, even within the Jewish community, they didn't necessarily super fit in.
0: Yeah. It's like they weren't Jewish enough for the Jewish community, but then she, they were too Jewish for For everyone everyone else. Yeah. God, I cannot fucking win here. Just shows how stupid anti-Semitism is.
1: Eventually she and and her sister Paige got sent to boarding school and it was called Parktown Girls.
0: Park town girls, they be living in a park town world.
1: <laughs> At school, Hilda really kind of like let loose. She dated frequently. In fact, she had a longtime relationship with a man named or not man, boy <laughs> named uh, Max Gluckman. Mm, Max Gluckman. And th- that was highlighted in a lot of my reading. So I don't know if he like became something. I didn't look into him. She she they just found a bunch of her notebooks where
0: it had she burned Mrs. a lot of her notebooks. Mrs. Hilda Gluckman on all the covers. That's right. why she burned them because she's like she's like this is too embarrassing. Oh, man. that's like can you imagine me having the last name Gluckman? Are you fucking serious?
1: <laughs> <laughs> she was really unsure of what she wanted to do during this time. I mean, you know, she was 15, 16, but you kind of had to choose because you have to choose where you are going to go to school after. And this was really when she started having increased awareness of. discrimination going on and the plight of innocent victims, particularly in South Africa, such as servants living in backyards, brutal treatments of blacks by whites, and then her own Jewish heritage and how she was treated. And so like, she really started thinking about this and was like, you know, maybe I should do something about this. So she ended up going to the University of Witwatersand, Witwatersand, Jesus, Witwater and Jesus. Love it. Witwatersrand.
0: Witwatersrand.
1: Yeah, um and then afterwards she would go on to the London School of Economics focusing on anthropology. She wanted to learn more about South African culture. She would study under Malinowski, who was a really big anthropologist at the time. And he would go on to write a uh, joke about his like cohort of anthropology students and he would say quote It is with some distress that a pure Nordic like myself finds that among the best pupils I have to register are are a Bantu, a purebred West African, three Jews and a Chinaman. Like and he was completely like joking about it because he was super accepting and he was actually like a really strong proponent of encouraging women in anthropology. And like anyone else, he was just like, if you want to study this, as long as you're like serious about it, I will support you.
0: So he was kind of poking, poking, poking fun, fun, Jesus Christ, at the idea that like he had such a diverse group of students when that would have been not the norm at the time, especially with him being like white is the driven snow, you know?
1: (laughs) Uh, So in 1934, Hilda would go on to win a fellowship from the International African Institute to study in Swaziland. Ooh. Yep. So in July of that year, while at an education conference, she actually met Subhuza II, who was actually the chief and would later go on to be the king of Swaziland. Oh, okay. So like she won the fellowship and then she ended up meeting the chief. And then the chief and her teacher Malinowski really like, yeah do that and so not only did she get to go to Swaziland but they helped move her into like the royal village of La Bamba exactly. and she was introduced to Sabhusa's mother who was the queen mother uh, Lamawa and then here she she started learning uh, C-swati and, like, really pursued her fieldwork. What's really interesting, and there's been a lot written about it, I didn't go too deep because it probably would have been a rabbit hole, but there was a really interesting relationship because she wasn't the only anthropologist that went, and there was an interesting relationship between this chief and what he would call his anthropologists. <laughs> Basically, a lot of the literature shows that, like, the reason he wanted them there was to, like, use them to promote his own agenda rather than like them coming in and promoting their agendas, you know? Like, so he was like, I want to be in control of like, you know, I don't want you to come in and take over. If you're going to be here, you have to help me kind of a thing. Okay. Okay. And Like he wasn't trying to do anything bad. He actually really wanted to like resurrect dying traditions and like bring the nation together and stuff like that. So like, yeah, the year she came to start her internship, like he was like really big into like recruiting everyone and getting them to support his plan for a system of education and have the traditional Swazi male military re- regiment introduced as part of the curriculum, like part of the Curriculum would be learning about their heritage and like their traditions of Swaziland. So
0: his whole thing was like he gets all these anthropologists in and instead of being like, yeah, you guys can study us and then put your stuff out and do your own thing. He's like, no, no, no. I want you to learn about our culture and right. our heritage and then help us incorporate that into our own education exactly. so that we can keep that going. Right. That's
1: cool. And they not only recruited Hilda, they also recruited Melanowski, her teacher, as well as a few other people. And Hilda was perfectly okay with that. And throughout her career, she talks about how it wouldn't have been possible to do what she got to do without his support. Yeah. Like, and like, so she was super grateful and it even came up more because that beau of hers back from high school Max Gluckman
0: <laughs> Mrs. Hilda was, Gluckman was
1: also a anthropologist and he actually got expelled from his his work site in Zululand after he offended the local regent and he was never allowed to return Oh damn Um so Sabazu, by contrast would hold like meetings and like they would all get together and talk so that wouldn't happen kind of a thing Yeah so during this time, Hilda would go on to make to write several major ugh, major articles. Uh, one was called Bantu Studies, and then one was just simply called Africa. Or maybe that might have been the pu- publication she wrote for, but it was a lot about Swaziland, and she wrote like a really long one about like how their hierarchy works and like what the queen mother does and like all of this stuff. And she was really big on making sure like the royalty read her paper, like, and she highly encouraged like other anthropologists to do that to the point where she, she got into an argument with a man named showman. Because he cited when he wrote a paper about Swaziland and he talked about the Paramount Chief and the Queen Mother and like all this stuff. And Hilda read his paper and was like, you know, you say you have oral sources, but there's a lot of inaccuracies in your book. Like, did you have anyone double check them? Like, who was your oral source? And, like, he didn't recognize the um, importance of the queen mother and, like, all of this stuff. And she's like, you know, I've, I've been here, too. Like, you're wrong.
0: Yeah. She's like... I fucking know. Right. Okay? And, and yeah. he's like, no, no, no. Let me mansplain this culture to you, bitch. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: No. And so he was, you know, like he came back and was like, well, you know, I've been in anthropology longer than you and blah, blah, blah. And, so, and she's like, like, I'm friends with the yeah, chief exactly. on Facebook, bitch. <laughs> and like her advisor supported her and his advisor supported him. And so like it really became like a thing. Unfortunately, his person was like the leader of the South African Inter-University and African community. So like she ended up starting to get a little pushback on her being there because of that. Oh, that's
0: bullshit. It's
1: okay. The guy that was doing that eventually became part of the apartheid movement. So he was an asshole. Oh, wait, like the yay apartheid? Yeah. Oh, fuck him. Yeah, so he was an
0: asshole. Oh, fuck him. Oh, wow. I wonder why he didn't consult with any of the, you know, no, like, people it was, in Swaziland. because well, it, it was it.
1: his advisor, but yeah, it was probably Still, that same ideology. Well,
0: and what I think is interesting is you have the people who are living the culture. Right. You have the king and the queen and you got, you got everyone there. You don't have to pick this apart from stone ruins and guesswork.
1: Right. Like you why? can talk to the people.
0: And Like. What the what I can't imagine a better gift than like compiling all this information on how this culture works and then being able to give it to the leader of that culture and being like, can you double check my work? And then this other person was just like.
1: Hey, I had some oral sources. Here's my paper. I'm like, it sounds like you made that up, brah. Yeah, sounds like you made that
0: up, buddy. (laughs) And then you got called out by a woman and you're like, no.
1: It's not only a woman, a Jewish woman. Yeah, it's
0: like, and she's like, the king is literally telling me that you're wrong. Also, like, I don't
1: know what you want, asshole. So during her time in Swaziland, she met Leo Cooper, who was like a sociologist in the area. And they ended up getting married, so that's where she got her last name. They would go on to have two daughters, Mary and Jenny, done with the family. (laughs) Mary and Jenny, bye. Right. So this phase of her studies being in Swaziland and learning their culture, this culminated in her dissertation, which ended up being a two-part dissertation, which doesn't sound fun because dissertations are the terrible the terrible. Yes. So first she wrote an Af- an African aristocracy rank among the Swazi, which is what I mentioned that it's, you know, it talks about like how you rank people, like what the rituals are. Cause you know, like there was rituals to be, like, to becoming king and the queen mother and like all of this stuff. So that was the first one. And then she wrote another one called the uniform of color, a study of white black relationships in Swaziland. So then she wrote about, you know, like the other shit that was going on—that is so cool. I know it's well. It's you can great. tell she had a real
0: passion for this. Like oh, she like, did, and she th- loved being her jam. in Swaziland.
1: Yeah, yeah. So eventually, they would move on in the early 1950s. Um, the couple and their kids moved to Durban, and during that decade in Durban, she focused her studies on the Indian community in the Natal region, which is later summarized in her book *Indian People in Natal*, because. Why not, you know, label it straightforward? I was going to
0: say academic articles aren't fun. They're just what they are.
1: Right, exactly. And so she was actually offered a senior lectureship there um, at the University of Natal. So they stayed longer and she didn't just do academic work here, kind of like in Swaziland where she was kind of helping the king implement new systems. She and her husband founded the Liberal Party of Natal and were like very active in their politics. Yeah. So in 1961, they would move again, this time to America, Los Angeles, mainly to escape the harassment of liberals that was increasingly pre- prevalent because of the apartheid that was starting to happen in South Africa. Uh. Yeah, so they got out, um, and Leo was able to get a professorship at UCLA, and then Hilda was a, published another book on the Swazi. Like She was absolutely in love with that culture, so she, this one was called The Swazi, South African Kingdom. She would actually go on to also be appointed as a professor at UCLA as well. And she was actually a very, very popular teacher. Like, everyone wanted to be in her. Like, she was that one that you'd see her name, like, oh, she's teaching. I don't care what class it is. I'm in it, Yeah, you know. And she would go on to also win the Guggenheim Fellowship, which Guggenheim Fellowships are grants that have been awarded annually since 1925 to those who, quote, Have demonstrated exceptional capacity for productive scholarship or exceptional creative ability in the arts.
0: Awesome. Right?
1: Someone in her department, so the Department of Anthropology, this was actually at a different university. It was written by E. Coulson, and this is what he had to say about her. Cooper is an artist with words as well as a fine anthropologist and a sensitive observer. In 84 pages of text, she has succeeded in creating a vivid and coherent picture of the Swazi organization and values through decades. It can stand by itself, but I hope it will lead readers back to her earlier books on the Swazi an African aristocracy and the uniform of color. The first is notable for having the finest account known to me of the ritual of African kingship. The latter is a sympathetic study of the clash of blacks and whites, a study that is relevant not only for an understanding of Swaziland, but also of an understanding of what is happening in South Africa. That's beautiful right so she would go on to write another book because why not and this time she wrote an extensive and official biography on Sabuzu the king Mm -hmm. and his life and like everything about him like so it's just about him as an extensive biography that he like promoted because they had stayed friends and it was you know She lived a pretty quiet life when she got older, kind of like once she got out of the sphere of anthropology, I couldn't find a lot about her. Um, And she would go on to die at the age of 80 on April 23rd, 1992. So I'm sorry. I probably missed a lot about her, but hopefully you get an idea of who Hilda was.
0: That is really cool. And I feel like that is the first time we've talked about that part of the world like south africa in general i don't think we've touched on it a
1: lot i don't know we haven't really touched on africa a whole lot like we've talked about people that have come from there we've covered a few
0: people from the continent and like where their story takes place there
1: yeah but it's few we'll work on that
0: yeah that that's really cool but then i love that she's just so fascinated with this culture and interested in preserving it and like having a record of it, right? And then and I, helping the people, yeah. But then I also feel like a lot of women in academia can relate to her experience, where she is literally having her work checked by the king,
1: right? And not not because she had to, not because she was a no, woman, but, but, but because she, she wanted to be accurate. Well. It's
0: stupid not to use that valuable resource. Right. Like who the fuck wouldn't? That's like if I was writing a chronology of your life and you didn't check it. And I with finished yeah. and I I didn't give it to you to be like is this actually when you were born? Is this actually is any of this factually correct? Like that's right. so stupid. But then for someone else to basically, it sounds like make it up. Go oh, had oral sources. Who? Like, name them. You clearly right. didn't because all of this is wrong. And then to have that person intimidate her. Right. And then for there to be professional pushback. She's like, I don't know what the fuck you want me to do. Me and the king are sitting over here just going like, nah, but brother, you're wrong. You're so wrong. Right,
1: exactly. And then, yeah, it kind of ended up being like a split thing where, you know, some people agreed with him and some people agreed with her. And then it just kind of like. Yeah. It's just like whatever. But
0: I feel like a lot of women in academia can relate to that like mansplaining situation. Like, well, I've been in here longer than you. It's like I literally have a better source because I literally have. I live next to the source. (laughs) (laughs) We're Facebook official, bitch. (laughs) Oh, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah. You're welcome.
0: So, Kelly. Yes. Love of my life. What did you have for lunch
1: today? (laughs) Pizza. Yeah nice supreme jack like jacks thin crust mm. it was really good what'd you have for lunch
0: uh i had a vegan korean barbecue bowl mm-hmm. that was delicious but it did not get my hemoglobin up enough to donate blood which i tried to do today and they're like no your hemoglobin's at 12 and it needs to be 12.5 and i'm like give me cookies that's, that's <laughs> your iron right yeah yeah Yeah, so my
1: iron's usually borderline low as well.
0: My my iron and my blood pressure are usually run low. Red meat, I know
1: go home and nom on some beef
0: well my bowl had a bunch of stuff that has iron in it like lima right. beans and stuff and i like there was so much food there and i even like timed it out like i'm gonna like slowly eat it starting at this time and like go through so it's in my system and then like apparently stays you in my system. start
1: a breakfast apparently
0: <laughs> no i so i'm gonna try again next week but kelly seriously for reals what are you having for dinner <laughs> king what are you Chinese thankful word?
1: for <laughs> um i'm thankful that I finally made the leave and went back to start seeing my psychologist. Um, I haven't been in a great place. And the thing is seeing a psychologist like doesn't make like the plan to see a psychologist. Like it, it gives me anxiety to be like, I need to call someone. I need to set up an appointment, especially since. I went back to the same psychologist I had and I hadn't like, I literally just like st- stopped going like cold Turkey. Like, and I'm like, Oh my God, he's going to hate me. You ghosted him. <laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but you know, I was like, Oh God, it's going to be so awkward and you know, but like everywhere else is super full and my doctor's being dumb about giving me a list of people that are covered by my insurance. <laughs> So I'm just like, I'll just go back to my old guy. And so I went and I had an appointment and it was great. And like afterward, I just, I felt so much better. And it was like, it was crazy. Like, cause like, you know, just to be able to talk to someone and have them like, be like, okay, like it's going to be okay. And you're fine. And here's a plan and here's what we can do. You know, it was great. So that's what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for my psychologist and for finally getting off my ass and going to one.
0: <laughs> it feels good to take control over something that feels so out of control. Right. Like um for example, my and I'm I'm not saying this to be like my problems, but I'm just relating. My depression this week has been pretty bad but it's one of those things where there's no trigger I don't really know why I kept blaming the weather and then later I was like no oh, this might just be my depression the weather's not helping right um and sometimes
1: it's hard to know like is yeah. it the weather or is it my depression am I just
0: tired or am I just depressed right
1: and, and that was one of my other things that I was like when I was talking to him I'm like I've been sleeping a lot and it's not like it's not like, oh, I'm going to take a nap because I want to take a nap. It's I'm exhausted. Yeah. And it's, yeah, because of my anxiety and depression.
0: But something I was thinking about with the depression and like they're not being a trigger, like I was just feeling it. And I think that's one of the hardest things about mental illness is that sometimes you can identify triggers and learn how to cope or avoid them or mitigate them. But a lot of the times you just feel that way and you're like, there's literally no reason for me to feel this way. And I don't know how to make it stop. Yep. Like you're you're just trapped in that feeling and you don't know when it's going to end. And you're just left to deal with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, then that's how my anxiety is, too. That I'll just like start worrying about something and there'll be absolutely no reason for like... And it won't even be like related to anything I was doing at the time. Oh, like, yeah. I'll just start worrying about something completely out of nowhere. And then I'll just like start getting cyclical thoughts. And it's not, not fun.
0: Your brain's like, hey, did you ever think about worrying about this? Oh, my God, you're right. Right. <laughs> um, I am thankful this week because last weekend my friend had a little housewarming because her and her fiance bought a house. Her boo. Yeah, her boo, her bae. Her peep, her person, however you want to put it, her doggy daddy.
1: Oh, that's cute. (laughs) I'm gonna call Justin that, and he's gonna hate me forever. Oh my god,
0: that's why you need to call him that. Oh yes. But it was great because I got to see, uh, you know, some friends there, and I got to see one of my old coworkers from where I worked at the daycare, and I got to see her kids. I'm like, oh my god, I remember when you were five, and I remember when you were still in your mommy's tummy. Like, why are you so old now? Oh yeah. And it was. Fun catching up with them, but also uh my my coworker, her husband is a veteran and he didn't serve in combat, but he has, you yeah. know, his own experiences that have weighed very heavily on him. So her and I were just kind of like talking about being partners with veterans and like trauma anniversaries and like those specific times of the year when you know it's going to be hard and fireworkish and like all this other stuff and guilt and how irrational guilt is yeah. and I kind first of all it was awesome because I don't have a lot of people in my life who can relate to that experience that I have right you know
1: like you can talk to people about it but they don't they're not going to fully understand because they haven't gone through it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So that was really cool. But also I, I I was telling Jared later, I was like, you know how when you meet another veteran and you immediately relax and you feel like you have this mutual understanding and you're starting on kind of the same plane of thought, that's how I felt. And it was really rewarding. It was really freeing. And like, I always liked her, like she was always a great coworker, but I had never really had the opportunity to connect with her like this yeah, and it was awesome, and so that just felt really good.
1: Yay. Yeah, it was
0: it was a super fun night. Her one one of good her daughter one of her daughters who was really little crawled into my lap and just like was cuddling me, and I look at her and I'm like, I don't work with kids anymore. I need this. And apparently the little girl heard it because later in the night she ran up to me and gave me a hug. She's like, I heard you miss this. And I'm like, I do. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: You're oh, so cute.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so it was it was a lot of fun. It was great to see everyone. It was great to just kind of catch up and have that socialization that I've right. been lacking. Like
1: a it's exhausting and like. I'm still learning to re-socialize. Yeah, but the, it's nice. It's also rewarding.
0: Yeah, yeah. That 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 was that was really good on multiple levels. So I'm thankful for that. Well, I'm also thankful for you, dear listener, for listening to us and hanging on with us through yeah. this whole thing, all the all ups our, and downs, all
1: weird ranting about bumper stickers. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you guys. Let us you let us know where you stand on the controversial moral issue of drug dealers and if or they do or do not have cancer. <laughs> we
1: should or should not shoot them if right. they have
0: cancer. Does it depend on the drugs? Like yeah, right. I like don't if know, just man. A pot dealer, is it are they fine? a pharmacist? Does that yeah, can-
1: <laughs> Like, please don't make
0: me do that. I this have several
1: is, friends that are pharmacists. This is a
0: really aggressive and vague bumper sticker, and I do it not is. like it. Right. It's basically just saying shoot people. <laughs>
1: yeah, kind of.
0: Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. It costs you nothing. It gives us warm fuzzies, and it's one of the best ways to help support the podcast. For free. For free. Uh, like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod.
1: Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is com, and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you. Any weird bumper stickers you see, tree vaginas, anything.
0: Yes. Especially weird bumpers. I want to know some of the weirdest bumper stickers people have seen now. Are there,
1: like, and for, like, our listeners in other countries, like, I want to see yours. Like, are they different from ours? Like, do you guys have, like, different weird aggressive bumper stickers? Or are yours not aggressive because you're not American?
0: Everyone in Canada has a bumper sticker that just says, oops, sorry. (laughs) I Love want that Canada. bumper sticker, I know, I do oh too. my God, um, yeah, and also we have a patreon if you want to support us for a little bit of cash, you can join us for as little as one dollar a month. We just released our bonus history happenings episode, which only our patrons get about Boston marriages, Heck
1: yeah, it's more
0: than just lesbians and then in but a- still lesbians
1: and then in a few weeks, we'll be- le- releasing our next video episode, our v adding a to the v-, v adding
0: the v to our a. Um, <laughs>
1: Where you could vote on what we wear and then see us wear it.
0: Yeah. What? Have you put up the poll nope, yet?
1: We need to talk about that. Okay, this
0: episode. cool. We will. By the time this episode comes out, you'll be able to vote. You you'll may have already there. voted and you'll be like, I'm so on top of it. And you mm-hmm. are. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Whining About Story. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, y'all.
1: Bye. Bye.